The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I remember once hearing or reading um, about these four foundations. So not all of you, but probably the majority of you have been doing the Buddhist studies now for the last year where we've covered the four foundations, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the mind, which we did earlier in the winter, and now mindfulness of the mental qualities. And uh, like so many of the teachings of the Buddha, you know, they get quite systematic, quite analytical, but the real, the real test, of course, is when we can let go of the structures, the sort of analytical, conceptual structures. It's like we've spent a long time studying how to ride a bicycle, what a bicycle it is, how it works, how you ride it. It's all been theoretical or, or abstract, but the real... Uh, Value comes when we're just in the moment and then we see what all these teachings were pointing to. We see it not in terms of the teachings, but the teachings, the concepts, sort of frame our experience in a particular way that illuminates what this is. Um, I gave uh, a talk on the five hindrances, or the five aggregates, rather, at uh, IMS uh, a couple of years ago when I was teaching, leading a retreat there. And uh, I began the retreat, or the, the talk, saying, you know, like if we got a pop quiz and there's one question, what is this? And uh, it's just sort of interesting, like, what, what would we, how would we answer? You know, we could have an answer like, uh, well, this is me at Common Ground on Monday night, you know, and that would be like a D. <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong, but it's, a, it's not a very sophisticated answer, right? And you might say, well, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that question. And there's a, there's a little bit more honesty, a little bit more subtlety to that. That might be a C. Like, I'm not sure what you mean by what is this. So just because now the mind is at least humble, you know, like, yeah, what is this? <laughs> you know, and that, you know, of course we'd feel the impulse to say I'm at Kamagran and it's Monday night, it's Buddhist studies class, but there'd be some recognition that, well, that's actually just a thought, you know, is that really what this is? I mean, that's just a concept. Or we might say, um, well, this is the, it's just the activity of the body and mind. You know, and that might be like a B, right? Because we've learned our Buddhist doctrine <laughs> and we know how to parrot it back. Like, I have no idea what's going on, but I think it's body and mind, so... I think I'm pretty safe just saying it's the body and the mind. What else could it be? It's got to be right. (laughs) And then, you know, we might say, 
you know, like we might deconstruct body-mind. We might say, well, sensations are being known. There are sensations being known here. There are sights being known. There are sounds being known. There are thoughts being known. You know, and so that's maybe getting more like an A minus, where we're, we're pointing to this in a a more simple way, more like the Buddha probably was pointing to in terms of the model of the five aggregates or the six sense gates. And may, maybe some of you know, like in the Buddhist tradition, they made a big deal. I'm sorry, in the Zen tradition, the Chan, um, I think it. It arose somewhere like the 10th century, so 1,600 years after the time of the Buddha. But it involves the Buddha, but it's a made-up, evidently a made-up story. But the character, Maha Kasapa, was a a historic figure, a well-known monk at the time of the Buddha, one of the senior monks. And uh, you probably have heard this because it's told a lot, but it's not really, evidently not not a historic truth. But... Evidently, the, as the story goes, at least, the Buddha was teaching, and, um, and that day he taught in a very direct way. He just held up a flower, you know, and I don't even think he said, what is this? But it's kind of as if he asked, what is this? And, uh, you know, as the story goes, most of the monks and whoever else was there were flustered like you know what does he want me to say but mahakaspa just smiled right he kind of got it the suchness the five aggregates not as a conceptual model but just the reality like oh so this is really what the, this fourth foundation is pointing to. It's the Buddha, it's like if we weren't wise enough to get it with mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of feeling or mindfulness of mind, then he creates all these bridges, kind of stepping stones to what is really simple. Like in that, in that uh, Mahayana Sutta, the Zen teaching about the Buddha holding up the flower, what Mahakasapa saw or realized was suchness. It's like things as they are. So that means all of these things in the fourth foundation. So we call that fourth foundation mindfulness of mental qualities. But it's really these stepping stones. See the hindrances, like we did in the guided meditation. I know there's a lot of talk, so we're sort of the guided meditation was sort of walking us through this as a linear development. So you can use this in your sit. You sit down. First and foremost, we're mindful of the hindrances. But not like it's a job. It's more, more like I have some faith I can, this heart is capable of being at ease. And so if the heart isn't immediately, directly, resting, realizing ease, well, honey, what's in the way? Right? So then we're doing mindfulness of the hindrances. What's in the way? What seems to be in the way? Oh, look, the mind wants something. The mind wants to get rid of something. Oh, look, all this energy, 
The mind doesn't know what to do with it. Or all this heaviness, mind doesn't know what to do with it. Or all this spinning of doubt, mind doesn't know what to do with it. Well, let's see what feeds and weakens this hindrance, this thing, this activity that seems to be in the way of settling. Even if we don't know the first thing about uh, going beyond sleepiness or going beyond restlessness or going beyond craving, wanting, we can just experiment. Like, I'll relate this way. I'll give myself what I want. I'll move my body. How did that work? You know, or I'm not going to move my body. I'm going to bring my attention back to the anchor, or I'm not going to bring my attention back to the anchor. So we can just see what actually helps the heart rest in the ease, the heart and body rest in the ease of the present moment. And so obviously that's a lot of our work, is... um, just getting to that basic ease, that basic con- continuous presence. And then in that place, that's a better place to answer the question, what is this, right? And then it's okay to pull out the Buddhist doctrine. Well, the Buddhist said, I know, you know, my teacher told me it's body and mind. And there are different ways to understand the body-mind. Right? You can use the six sense gates. As a way, because what we're doing now is we're helping the mind replace its habit, which is to interpret. Now I'm pretty chilled out, right? Because the hindrances are in the distance, they've been suppressed, they're not dominating the mind, so the mind's pretty settled. And now the question is, honey, what is this? And the habit energy is going to want to say, it's me at common ground, or it's my mind, or it's I'm here. But we want to, the Buddha saying it's really skillful to replace the conditioned story you have about what this is with the five aggregates or the six sense gates. So we're training them that to see this now that the mind is calm to get interested in the experience as body and mind. Both the six sense gates and the five hindrances which are you know, two of the maps that we're learning in this fourth foundation, right? just to review. So there's hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense gates, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. And so what I'm doing tonight is just taking a look at how they work together as a practice, as an ordinary everyday set that we might do. Honey? Let's rest in the natural ease of the body and mind. It's not working. What's in the way? Right? So that's the investigation of the hindrances. So then we have some success and we're settled. And then we're, so, well, what is this? It's like the natural question. Now that I'm settled, what, what's, what is this? Well, it's the body and mind. Oh, yeah. So there's the body, the five senses being known. And then the mind, and then too, if the mind is settled enough, we can start to see the different facets of the mind. The mind is really not different things, or it is a lot of different things, but they're not like in different locations, you know, perceptions over here, feeling tones over here, consciousness is over in this area, 
mental formations over here. No, it's just, you know, and even the mind and body aren't really two different things. It's just this. But we can look at this in terms of the five physical senses, the sensitivity of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Or we can look at this in terms of the mind is perceiving things. Or there's, with every contact, there's a feeling. And then the mind, with memory, it recognizes, it makes up a story, basically, of what this is. It defines it or labels it. That's perception. And then there's all the other, like an intention to do something because of the contact the experience, all that stuff is called mental formations. Basically, anything, any other activity of the mind, we just put in this more general category, mental formations, including intention, any volitional action. And then the fact that it's all being known, we call consciousness. So this, once we're settled, then we're trying to keep things simple by remembering it's just body and mind being known body, mind being known. And those of you who can get to a place where your mind's pretty settled, you l- one of the things we learn is if you don't put that mind to work, you're going to go to sleep. That mind that's really settled, it's either doing one of two things. I mean, if it's wholesome. <laughs> if it's unwholesome, it's just going to go to sleep. Or it's going to stir the pot because it's bored with its calm. Right? And it was like, I'm feeling pretty good. What can I worry about? You know, what can I plan? But when it's wholesome, you're settled, and you want to do something that's wholesome, you can do one of two things. You can look at the calm and very naturally, appropriately wonder, can the mind be even more calm? So this would, is what we call jhana practice, right? Or concentration practice, where what the mind is interested in isn't the underlying nature of phenomena, the three characteristics. It's always changing. It's ephemeral. It's not self. When it's identified with, it's dukkha. It's heavy. It's stressful. That's the wisdom path, which I'll talk about in a moment. Or we can do the concentration pr- practice. So both, you're going to start the same way, both. You sit down and you bring faith up and you say, I know from my own experience, or if you're your first sit ever, you'd say, I know because the Buddha says so, that this heart and mind is capable of settling down. So I'm going to rest in that natural ease. And then we notice, I'm not resting in that natural ease. What's in the way? And we're doing that hindrance practice, right? Oh, this seems to be in the way of settling. And we look at it. And we learn how to feed it. And say, that's not the way. And we learn how to weaken the hindrance. We go, oh, yeah. That feels good. That feels right. We get good at that over time and we get to this middle place. Then we have to choose, do I want to explore jhana, deep states of concentration, absorption, or do I want to go to wisdom practice? So if we do jhana, then the curiosity is all about can this beautiful, settled mind become even more beautiful, more settled? That's jhana practice. You know, There's a little bit more to it, but basically that's it. We're watering the natural curiosity of the mind about it becoming more settled, more quiet, more retreated, more peaceful. 
And what wisdom practice does here, if you're going that direction, not towards concentration, but toward the development of insight, then what the mind gets curious about is that question I mentioned before, like that pop quiz. What is this? Now that I'm calm, what is this? And then we can, well, the Buddha says it's body and mind being known. Well, let's, let me use that so that I don't fall into my habit of thinking, well, this is me. I'm here, and I'm calm, and I'm just sitting here. Because then you'll get bored. If, you're, if you have this self-view in that place, you'll want to do something. It's like, my mind's really calm. This would be a good time to solve some of my problems in life. And it is actually a good time to think about this relationship at work or you know, what to do with this part of your life or that part of your life because the mind is calm and clear. It'd be, it would be a good time to think through, think through things. But what we want to do is not take care of self-projects but to replace that habit with, well, the Buddha says to practice seeing this, understanding this, as body-mind being known. Right? So we do that. We use the six sense gates, and you can just move through them like there are other seeing. And whatever that seeing is right now, it's just something being known. Okay, there's hearing. And whatever that hearing is, it's just something being known. So now we're doing the six sense gates meditation, right? Or you're doing the five aggregates. Okay, there's the body, which are these five ways of being sensitive. And the heart, mind, is constantly being impinged upon by sights coming in, sounds coming in, sensation coming in, smells and tastes coming in, impinged upon all the time. And then every time there's a sense contact, whether it's from one of the five senses or even a thought is an input, but whenever there's contact, then the mind, out of habit, feels like it has to do something with the contact like perceive it, feel something about it, do something about it, the volitional piece, the intentional piece. Right? And so we just start to study, understand, frame our experience in terms of this dynamic. Because the Buddha says, like in terms of five aggregates, you know, this was in the uh, first sutta where the Buddha is teaching the Four Noble Truths. And he talks about, right at the beginning of that, and this is the first, evidently, it said at least, that it was the first Dharma talk the Buddha gave. (coughs) So this is where he talks about the First Noble Truth, you know, that there is dukkha. He says, now this, where he's talking to his five spiritual friends, now this practitioner's, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with what's unpleasant is stressful. Separation from what's pleasant is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. And then this is where he says it. He says, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful, right? So body and mind being known, taking this personal, body and mind being known, clinging, grasping, trying to control, 
having an agenda about body and mind, that is the definition of dukkha. The wrong understanding or the misunderstanding of body and mind is dukkha. So that's why we've done the work of dropping the hindrances and then the question, what is, what is this? Oh, it's body and mind. And then we're observing here, like we're, we're learning to frame this experience as body and mind. Right? Instead of things that are personal. Such so as body, mind being known, body, mind being known, body, mind being known. And remember, the emphasis is on is being known. Sensations are being known. Perception is being known. Feeling tone is being known. Whatever sort of is predominant or front and center. Oh, that's just the next contact, the next experience being known. It's body-mind, body-mind being known. It's never more than that. So that really stabilizes the mind, right? Because it, it's like using that frame of body-mind being known then is like gives the mind some immunity, prevents the mind from this expansive getting into some self-story, self-drama. And so it's in that place that the factors of awakening can come to development. So now you've got some stability, just body-mind being known. There's a real sort of like a... If the mind is concentrated, but not concentrated from retreating from experience, but concentrated from having right view with things coming and going. So there's two ways for the mind to get really stable. One is to retreat. Right. Basically, the mind is the knowing mind is retreating from its sense gates. So there's nothing there to disturb the mind. The other way to get really solid and firm in concentration is to not be confused. And here we're practicing not getting confused by remembering it's just body-mind being known, body-mind being known. The, the frame of the aggregates or the six sense gates gives the mind immunity, pre- prevents the mind from falling into self-stories. Because it's just body-mind being known. So whatever thought that might trigger the drama, you know, it's just seeing that's just perception or a feeling tone or some mental formation stuff, right? Consciousness. What else could it be? And that is something being known, whatever that is. Whatever aspect of the mind it is that seems to be predominant, it's just that being known. So there's a lot of immunity... And then mindfulness, investigation. Remember, investigation is really about uh, the mind is investigating how to uh, not lose the thread of the present moment and then the persistence. So at this point, when we're, we're going to develop the seven factors, the mind already has the scent of freedom, right? It's like because we've got this frame of body-mind being known, there's like we, we already have considerable freedom 
from the stress of worrying about this, thinking about that, dealing with this experience in terms of my story. So the the development of the seven factors, you have to think of this as arising when things are already really chilled out. Then it's easy for these seven guys, seven factors to come into balance. So we're re- it's not so much we're doing the mindfulness, doing the investigation, doing the persistence. It's like we're bringing those three into view. Like when we're doing body, mind being known, clearly there's a lot of mindfulness. The mind is investigating, right? That The force of investigation is what's keeping the mind from seeing this present moment from the usual frame. This is me sitting here, wondering why I'm here. <laughs> you know, what am I doing? And what's this, what's this about? Or whatever else, the sort of habit energy, the worry, ha- worry energy or planning energy might, where that might take the mind. It's not doing that because it's investigating, it's seeing. Uh, like the, one of the things the investigation is doing is it's knowing the difference between when it goes to the content of my story, it sees how things get stressful. And when it goes back to seeing things in the simplicity of body-mind being known, it sees how things settle down again. So that's what the investigation is. It's like sees what is disturbing for the mind and what's settling for the mind. It's not losing that thread. And then the persistence is just that. It's like not forgetting that. So they really work together and then the joy, I like to think of the joy that comes in, the rapture that comes in next, the fourth factor of awakening, is because the mind is getting some real freedom from mental constructs involving me, self, self-idea, self-drama, then experience is experience as being very fluid. Because the only thing that makes the way it is, the experience of the body and mind feel tight or the absence of joy is that the mind is entrapped, contained by its ideas about things. So when there's some freedom from that, then everything feels very fluid. And that's what we feel as joy. It's like the solidity of the body and the mind the solidity of my life, my problems, my hopes, my fears, all of that, those constructs that give our life definition and weight begin to fall away. And when they, as they fall away, we call that rapture. It's like the constructs that make things feel, appear to be solid and heavy and weightful begin to fall away because they're constructions. They're there because the mind constructs that definition, that shape, that hardness, and they begin to fall away. And when they fall away in a quick way, then you get a big wave of rapture. And when they slowly, gradually fall away, you just everything just feels more alive. People like even going on a nine-day retreat, one of the things people notice, maybe even after the first retreat, you know, and they leave the retreat center and they're in their car. And it's like, everything is just so amazing. It's like when people sometimes take certain drugs and that affect your perception. 
And then it's like everything looks different. Lights are brighter, trees are more beautiful, you know, it's like food. Oh. But it, what's really different is that things aren't so fixed. Like when I go and eat something, like if I were to go home and make popcorn tonight, so much of those moments would be defined by my perception. Oh, I'm eating popcorn. And the feeling tone that arises because of the perception. So it would be like these, this great barrier between the actuality of the experience of chewing, swallowing, tasting, smelling, the idea of me eating popcorn and I'm the guy who likes popcorn but I like it this way. And those ideas are in prison. It's like a prison that keeps me from the actual aliveness of the experience. So when we start to develop the seven factors, this is what's beginning to come online. There's mindfulness, that continuity of awareness, and then because of the continuity of awareness, there can be the investigation, what's keeping the mind, the attention in the present moment, what's causing the attention to leave the present moment and then get caught in concept, right? And the persistence to do what's good, right? So, and then joy, things start to open up. Joy, joy is pleasant. And when things are really pleasant, the habit of doing gets tranquilized. Why do I need to do anything? It feels so good. right? So just think about the great depth and breadth of our habit energy of doing. And all of our doing is in pursuit of pleasure. right? I mean, basically, that's all the habits around doing is to get something pleasant. But the more joy there is arising in the present moment, then it like puts water on the fires of doing. Ah, oh. oh, it's like that wave, that relaxation of contentedness. This is what I wanted. And then that, that wave of relaxation, contentedness, supports a stillness. The mind begins to discern, notice the mind that's not agitated by craving, by wanting something, by hoping for something. This mind is always there, or this aspect of the mind, the silence of the mind, the stillness of the mind, it's always there, but there's all these reverberations of thinking that I've got to get something or do something or be somebody. But because of the tranquility, that sort of joy leading into tranquility, it settles things down quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, the mind recognizes this background of stillness or space or silence or peace. And that's the factor of concentration, the sixth factor. And then that the deepening, the recog- the deepening recognition of concentration, and the concentration matures when the mind recognizes this quality of stillness and trusts it, relaxes with it, lets it reveal itself, let it lets it express itself, then that 
shifts the mind's view, the mind's relationship to conditioned reality, to what comes and goes. And that's called equanimity. So normally, I care about what comes and goes in my experience. I'm not impartial, right? Because some things are pleasant and some things are unpleasant. But now because the mind has in view stillness, peace, which is the mind not affected by craving, right? So it has the taste of Nibbana. It's not real Nibbana because it comes and goes still. It's not permanent. But it has the flavor. Concentration has the flavor of Nibbana because it's, right, the definition of Nibbana is the mind free from craving. So that's why we say in Buddhist circles that the flavor of Nibbana is equanimity, the taste of freedom, right? So it's the heart realizes this impartial, like, Conditioned reality is coming and going, and some of it's pleasant, some of it's unpleasant. But you know what? I don't, I, I don't feel so pushed around by that. It doesn't really matter. I still know the difference between pleasant and unpleasant. But now my mind is not so oriented around, so pushed around by what's pleasant and unpleasant. It's not as important because the mind understands this reality of non-grasping, this reality of equanimity. There it is. Because it's seen, because of the concentration, it's seen the possibility of impartiality. And it's such a relief, the mind realizes it as such a relief not to be dependent on conditions. Because can we ever get conditions under control? No. And the mind knows that. We know we can't. So when the mind realizes this other way of relating to the un, the ungovernableness of conditions, experiences, that this possibility of being equanimous, it's like, well, that is the way. Right? So that's called insight. The seven factors come into maturity and then the mind has some insight into the Four Noble Truths. No equanimity, which we call attachment, is suffering. Right? Developing non-attachment, realizing non-attachment is the way. So that's the Four Noble Truths, which we'll talk about the next two weeks. So when you're sitting, you might just work with these five maps, right? You know, you can just write them down in front of you, and then you just remember, okay, you sit down, you get settled, and you realize you bring that faith up. I, I Certainly the Buddha says this, and probably most of us have had experiences of this heart really settling. So I know this mind, this heart can settle. So, honey, let's just settle. And then we see what's in the way of that settling. Okay, the Buddha describes this. He maps this out. He says, there are these things that tend to hinder the settling. And there are ways that I relate to these things that hinder settling in ways that feed them. But I could relate to them in ways that weaken the hindrances. So let me go about 
developing skill here at this place in practice. And then we settle. We get some freedom from the hindrances and then we ask, what is this? And instead of answering it like we always answer it, it's me. (laughs) You know, we say, no, I'm going to check out what the Buddha says. I'm going to use this different frame. It's body and mind. It's body and mind being known. Five aggregates or the six sense gates. And we train the mind to see it that way. Just keep, and then th- use your thoughts in the direction of sustaining that perception. Seeing it in terms of body, mind being known, body, mind being known. And notice the effect. The sort of the sort of the cool feeling of equanimity. So this is like a first level of equanimity. And then with that greater settledness, then just notice the continuity of mindfulness that investigation, that interest in what, like even before the mind goes into some self-drama, you're just noticing the inclination of the mind to want to make a drama out of what's going on. But investigation sees like, that's not the way, don't do that. Just come back, it's just this being known. It's just this. And that willingness to, be, to persist, that's the energy, the third factor of awakening. And then joy You'll notice the joy when things start, the energy of the body-mind starts to seem more and more like a natural flow. It might initially just be a feeling of vibration. Because what is vibration anyway? It's just stuff happening without it being contained. Right? Vibration has no weight. So notice, you have to be interested in joy or rapture because initially it will be unfamiliar so the mind will dismiss it in its earlier simple manifestations. But if you get interested in it, because the Buddha says, hey, there's this fourth factor of awakening, stay open to it. Right? Take a look for it. That lightness, that vibration, that f- sense of flow, that kind of delight. And it's pleasant. And the Buddha says, notice it. Get interested in it. Really? And what are you noticing about rapture? That it's rapturous. It's pleasant. Because that's what causes the wave of tranquility. And you'll notice that like, ah, that sense of ease and contentedness. Ah. So notice that. Notice the settledness of that. And notice what that brings into view. The stillness. Learn to rest in that. Learn to trust it. And notice how impartial the mind becomes to what's coming and going when it understands, when it's connected with stillness, the silence, the peace. The coming and going of sensation and sound and sight and thought just becomes less relevant when the mind is recognizing the silence, the peace, the stillness. And then, what does that say? You know, what, how does that, what does that reveal about suffering and the end of suffering? The Four Noble Truths. The development of the seven factors. What does that, and the, and the fruit of that being equanimity. What does that reveal? Because as soon as there's any kind of grasping, from the contrast of being really equanimous, 
we see so clearly the birth of suffering, even just a little wavelet of grasping. Because the contrast from being really equanimous and then all of a sudden, oh, I don't want this to end. Oh, that's the birth of suffering. We see it. That's the second noble truth. And then we realize, I don't have to be the one who doesn't want this to end. That whole construction doesn't need to be taken up. And then there's a third noble truth because we notice again the release like we were about or had just begun to get tight and now the release. And then the mind realizes, oh, this is the way. Basically to not pick up attachment, to not go back to attachment. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to for people to share. We've been looking now the last couple of weeks at the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And many of you have been studying these maps for a long time. So any questions, of course, but also any comments from your own practice, be just nice to hear from folks. We have about 15 minutes or so. We'd like to begin. What have you been learning? Or what comes to mind based on what I said tonight? So I have a question regarding the five aggregates. Um, It occurs to me that it seems like two of which we're born with. Born with form. You know, we can't deny form and uh, consciousness of form. But... I feel like feeling and perception and mental formations are all, they're all conditioned. As in, I would have a different feeling about a certain thing than you would. You know, depending on how I grew up, what my conditioning was. You still feel, like you feel the seat. I feel the seat. Or I guess I don't feel it. It's a form, right? Mm-hmm. But the way you feel it, is the different. feeling tone of it, yeah, is different, right? And what's the feeling tone related to? It it's more <clears throat> like one teacher says that um, that in terms of contact or uh, an experience, there's the feeling tone and the uh, you know the actual sight or sound or sensation, um, that's more of a... And consciousness, you know, it's more of a receptive. There's nothing that's actually being constructed in that because the feeling tone, in a way, is already going to be defined by the perception, like how the mind recognizes the experience. Because we could have the same experience, but one day recognize that contact, that experience with this perception and another day with this other perception, and based on the perception, the feeling tone might be different. Yeah, Yeah. so, all right, so when we're acknowledging that, that this is the body and the mind, and these are parts of the perception, of the the form, the feeling tone, then what do I want to do with that? What do I do with that feeling? my volitions and where do I go with it all that story is just created right um, and, and then there's and that's all the mental formation right and then there's consciousness of all that yeah of all of that happening mm-hmm. um, 
So, and the idea being acknowledging that as this is the body and the mind being, being known, known at this moment. At a certain point, it would occur to me that the the equanimity of each moment, like no, those three factors don't really exist. Does that make sense? Like the feeling tone, it happens. Like you know, each experience happens. Mm -hmm. But the feeling tone is just created. Like you said, it's impermanent by the mind. It changes all the time. The mental formations, the volition. You know, what I want to do with it, it's all impermanent, but I'm always knowing it. You know, there's always consciousness of it. Mm -hmm. So we learned that at one point, but are we trying to forget it or are you just trying to be able to see it at all times and not become attached to it? Yeah. You're, you know just, I mean? you're just using... Um, like a frame is the word I used, you're using that frame of mind and body as a preventative measure, so to basically to keep things simple and to uh, prevent more, you know, the likelihood of, of launching back into uh, a story that would trigger mental proliferation, which would be perceived, you know, and have a feeling tone, which would then lead to more mental proliferation and on and on like that. So the thing about recognizing this as mind-body being known, it's like there's less likely, that's less likely to trigger a strong impulse towards mental proliferation because it doesn't seem personal. So why would I need, why would, what would that trigger, Right. So on purpose, it's a frame, it's a way of the mind, like it's, a, it's sort of an a intermediary meaning, right? And it's a particular kind of meaning. This is just the body-mind being known that's not very dramatic from a self point of view. Because it's still the self who's recognized, you know, we're training the self, what we take to be the self, to see things this way. Um, a while ago, I studied the Course in Miracles, and there was a line in there that said, "I am not a body; I am free. I am still as God created me." And it never really made sense until you started talking about mind and body as being known. And I've been waking up in the middle of the night with um, restlessness. Maybe point it. I don't know if they can hear you. So with a restlessness louder. at night. And so I've been playing with that idea of not being my body and helping it release. And it's it's been difficult. But tonight, for some reason, it really clicked when you said mind and body are being known. Yeah, that's a very powerful frame. Remember, you can become enlightened at any place along the spectrum. In fact, you know, I there's some controversy whether the Buddha even used this whole discourse, you know, where you have the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and then mindfulness of these maps. But one way I like to think about it is like, 
The smart people, they just are mindful of the body and they're immediately liberated, right? And those of us who are more dull, we need mindfulness of the body and then mindfulness of feeling. And the real dullards, you know, it's like, okay, let me, let me be clear. <laughs> and then, you know, the Buddha maps it out in even greater detail for the people who need that kind of instruction. So this basic, just the body-mind being known, because what you were doing at night saying, like, uh, I'm not this body, it's still, it's like uh, there's some truth to that, but that's what a self would say, I'm not this body. So what we need to understand is what this is. It's just mind and body. So we're basically, we have to replace a habit, a self-habit, constructing a sense of self. We have to give the thinking mind something else to think. Oh, it's just the body-mind being known. And then that, because that concept, oh, it's just the body-mind being known, tends to align itself nicely with direct experience, things really settle down that the integrity between the concept, body and mind being known, and the direct experiencing in the moment, that integrity, the lack of interference between the view and what's being known, that allows for settling down. And that allows the seven factors. Or, you know, the seven factors is basically saying that this beautiful balance is coming into balance, right? Samadhi a mind that can see things as they are. So it's always this chicken and egg where we need to settle down in order to help the mind settle down. I mean, it's always that way. This is why it's a frustrating practice. So we start with an act of faith. This mind, this heart is capable of settling down. So what's in the way? Because of the faith, we're willing to look at what's in the way. If we don't have faith that the mind can settle down, why would we be interested in the hindrances? We just would take them to be like reality and they're always going to be, you know, the sleepiness, the whatever, doubt, just who I am. I'm just a doubtful person. I'm just a needy person. I'm just an angry person. But we know, we've been told that things can settle down. So then, well, maybe I could put that aside. Yeah, sorry, I kind of deviated from your comment, Julie, but thanks for sharing. Time for maybe one or two more thoughts. Yeah, first Roger and then Claire. So earlier you were talking about when you sit to meditate, you know, you can take these two directions, the um, insight, vipassana, or concentration, samadhi. And so I've been pondering that since you said that. And it seems to me, you know, when I sit, just the natural inclination is a path of, of settling into... Uh, a concentrated state because, you know, you grab a hold of a, you know, a breath or sometimes it's a mantra for me and it gets more refined, it gets more pleasant and you sink into it. And it's like, well, why would I want to, you know, invoke um, any kind of vipassana at this point and do scanning and so forth because it's it's just so settling. And it also feels like when, when then I emerge and uh, come out of meditation then, you know, you have that stillness, and then that's like a perfect opportunity when your senses are then active to, you know, 
have that wisdom practice, you know, as you go about. And at least that seems to be how it works for me. So. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's the classical way to practice. But remember, it's not personal. So when you put aside the hindrances, that's like uh, Rogers has kind of done some practice in, with jhana. So that's like access concentration, right? So uh, at that moment, the mind, what might be dominant in the mind in that moment is a natural, authentic curiosity about suffering and the end of suffering. right? So that would take it into, well, what is this? Oh, this is body-mind being known. You know, and into the development of the seven factors and into deeper insight. Because the mind is interested in both of those things. The mind is interested in, in deep, uh, settling into deep, quiet states because they're very pleasant and very healing. But once the mind has done that, the mind may not be interested in doing that. It might be interested in understanding because you can touch that deep peace, but then later in the day you can be a really neurotic fool. And it's like, well, what's, what's really going on here? So partly it will be just a matter of how the personality is conditioned once things have settled, whether that mind is really, partly it's the teacher you know, or the teachings that that person has been in contact with, and part of it is just the personality and maybe even previ- previous life um, spiritual practice, what the person is interested in doing when things settle down. And some people just are naturally really interested in seeing how much things can settle down to the nth degree. And other people are just naturally interested in like, what the hell is this thing about suffering? You know, how is it that my heart, this heart, gets bound up? But anybody who's doing practice for a while in this tradition should take up constant, like if you know someone's in it for decades, it would make sense to me that somebody tell them, you know, for a couple of years, why don't you emphasize concentration practice, right? It just would make a lot of sense to me that you would just do that intentionally for a while. And then if you had a real talent or if that commitment, because your teacher told you to do it or you, you've read something that said you probably should, you know, make an effort to develop concentration just to see, you know, what can come from it, then uh, you might ignite a latent interest that was there but hadn't really gotten some fuel and now you're kind of on fire to sort of get curious, like can this mind, heart become even more settled, even more settled, even more settled. Yeah, thanks Roger. Claire, please. So I've just been thinking about how I've been how I experienced the, or the extent that I experienced the seven factors of awakening. And I, I kind of have a question. Um, so for some things when I'm, when I'm, um, in the investigation factor, (laughs) um, it's easier to move through from investigation to interest to joy. Like like the habits are easier to um, see as unwholesome and to you know to to move through them like like 
do I need the chocolate chips? No, the chocolate chips like are going to make me feel bad about having eaten chocolate chips. Um, but for other things, it's just so hard. I, fi- I find that even when I know it's an unwholesome habit, I just, no matter how many times I recognize it as unwholesome, it feels like it's still like feelings of resentment towards someone, for example. feels like it, even though I recognize it over and over, it just, it can't, it's like stuck with me. So yeah. I just, I don't know if you have any suggestions for those kinds of habits or concepts that you can't, it's, you can't separate from very easily. Yeah. And, and there's a, you know, there's this phenomena of stacking. So we might think that what's going on is there's this desire for some sense treat, but there's likely to be other things that you're not noticing. And so you think you're dealing with this, but there's actually something else. Like you might need to make peace with not being in control, for example. So there you are, and there are these, the force of habit of desiring something, desiring a sense treat. And you're wondering why the fact that you're seeing it, it seems like you're seeing it clearly, that it's not uprooting. But maybe what's actually predominant is not that you desire chocolate chips, but what's predominant might be the judgment that I shouldn't be somebody who desires chocolate chips, right? Or I should be somebody who can control this personality. So when things aren't changing, we have to ask ourselves something like, well, what's really happening here? What's really being known? Where's the suffering here? Or what's not being seen here? Because it might be that you think this is going on, but actually something else is going on. But it's a little, it's like more personal, so you tend, it doesn't easily come into view because it's so personal. Like frustration not being in control. Oh, this is frustration not being in control. See, then it has nothing to do with whether you're going to get the chips or not. What's really interesting to the mind is that the force of habit is impersonal. You're not, nobody's in control of it. Like what actually has dominance in a moment, whether you eat the chips or don't, there isn't somebody who can control that. It's just a matter of momentum. But the wanting to be able to stop oneself from doing something, that you can look at that you can bring into view. Oh, I don't like having a personality that's nature. I want a personality that I can drive like a car. That responds, you know, resp- one of those responsive European cars. <laughs> do what you ask it to do. But what maybe what you're being asked to wake up to is, that's not what you have. You don't have that. And that's like a shock, you know, to... That's why things like patience and forgiveness and a sense of humor are so important as we wake up. Because it's a real shift in spiritual life from the metaphor of like, I've got a wild horse that I'm going to train to, oh, this is nature, not self. This is nature, not self. Now, seeing that, seeing this and that way does change things. But Nobody's in control. 
But understanding that there's nobody in control is really liberating. But there's a, a grieving process from the initial thought that I'm going to get my act together. We have a lot of history with that view. I'm going to get my act together. I'm really going to get my act together. No, I am. I'm going to get my act together. <laughs> and then, and uh, even though it's been frustrating, there's been a lot of betrayal, we, we have a lot of faith in that point of view. And, but it will be worn down because it just doesn't line up with reality. But it will have small groups. You can talk about that next week in your small groups as you're replacing that view with these maps that are listed in the, seven, uh, in the fourth foundation. But we're a few minutes over, so let's just let go of the words, take a breath or two together in silence. Deeply appreciating the Buddhist teachings, we're so fortunate that these teachings can illuminate the nature of our minds and really support us being more skillful in life. So wishing everyone a good week of practice. I'll see you next Monday night, most of you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.